They just came on now. Let's try to get closer to the stage. Celebrate connections made by music this summer. Find out more at 3.ie forward slash music. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Brooke Davis, author of this year's literary sensation, Lost and Found. Brooke, welcome. Thanks, Magdalena. It's a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, pleasure on my side as well. So um, before we begin chatting, can I just ask you to read a little bit from Lost and Found? I would love to. So this is, there's, there's three characters in Lost and Found, and I'm reading from the point of view of the elderly male character, whose name is Carl the Typist. In their life together, Carl and Evie didn't go anywhere, ever. They were each other's foreign countries. Only unhappy people leave home, Evie declared. And we don't need to leave, he said, typing on his forearm. Yes, she said, resting her forehead on his chin. We don't need to leave. They lived such a small life. Trees and flowers and ocean and neighbours. They never scaled mountains or braved rapids or went on telly. They never ate strange animals in Asian countries. They never starved themselves or set themselves on fire for the greater good. They never delivered a rousing speech, sang in a musical or fought in a boxing ring. Their names wouldn't be in textbooks for children. Their faces wouldn't be on banknotes. They would not get their own statues. And when they died, their names would disappear like their last breath a curiosity for cemetery-goers and nothing more. But they had loved. They grew plants, drank tea in the afternoon light, waved at neighbours. They watched Sale of the Century every night and together were reasonably accomplished at it. They exchanged Christmas gifts with their butcher, their fruiterer and their baker. Carl gave an old typewriter to the young, highly literate boy working at the newsagent. Evie made mittens for the girls working the morning shift at the supermarket. Carl was a guest in the local grade 6 class, talking about the history of their town. Evie was a guest in a local year 7 class, demonstrating how to make a pavlova. Carl fiddled about in the shed. Evie fiddled about in the kitchen. They went for looping walks in the morning and evening through local bushland through the town, along the shoreline. Their life was a 20-kilometre radius around their house. He remembers not being able to talk to her as she lay there at the mercy of machinery and starchy sheets. His words in the air without hers were horrifying. She was sleeping. She was always sleeping. She would open her eyes occasionally, but they reeled like a newborn. So he had stood up and pulled back the sheet that had been so tightly enclosed around her as though someone wanted to trap her there, pin her to this bed like a specimen of the almost dead. 
he rested his hands on her arm, just bone really, nothing much more, and he piped, softer than breath, I am here, Evie, and then walked around to the other side of the bed and rested his palms on her other arm, and her skin was not her skin. There were bruises up this arm, so purple, with such definite edges, like maps of little-known countries, and he thought, you are my foreign country, but he typed, I am here, Evie. And then he lifted up the hospital gown to just above her knees, and her thighs were just nothing. They were just nothing. And he rested his open palms on one and felt so much nothingness. And he was crying now. He couldn't help it. He was so weak. He was so weak. There was just so much nothingness. And he thought about making nothing into something, and he typed with force and flair this time, watching his fingers. The way they moved on on her skin, he so desperately wanted her to feel the beauty of what his fingers were doing. And he typed, I am here, Evie, I am here, Evie, I am here, Evie, over and over again, all the way down her thigh, over her knee, down her shin, like a line of ants marching down her leg. And he leaned over the bed and typed down her other leg, I am here, Evie. And then moved to the bottom of the bed and held her feet, her very, very cold feet, in his fists as small children hold crayons. And he was holding them so hard, as hard as he'd ever held anything. But she didn't move. She didn't notice. She didn't even stir. I am here, Evie. I am here, Evie. I am here, Evie. And that's it. <laughs> well, you can't see my eyes are a little blurry at the moment. Oh, um, <laughs> there's something so ordinary and familiar for anybody who's been through the loss of somebody with that scene. Hmm. But there is also something quite extraordinary and, and beautiful and exquisite in it. And And I guess... That's a little bit how the book works, isn't it? <laughs> That's a really nice thing to say, and I love the the way you've described that. And that is, it's definitely kind of how I see life and what my the way I wanted my characters to see their lives, or at least to kind of present their lives um, on the page. But we're all kind of a bit ordinary, and everything we experience is is pretty ordinary. But it's also the there's such extraordinariness to it as well, even when we're doing the most kind of normal um, things, I think. Or, or even in the ugliness, because, you know, there is a quite an ugliness in, in death, and particularly death in a hospital with bruising up the arm and, mm. you know, cancer and, and just the, the kinds of things that I guess are all too commonplace in our lives um it's ugly but it's also that you know that that connection with carl and what he's doing on her um Mm -hmm. typing i'm here and and you know making her his foreign country and despite not having done anything grand um you know there is there is an exquisite beauty in that yeah and and yeah really i mean his his life I, I base that, there's so much of that in kind of, in, in that particular passage anyway, related to the way my mum lived her life and 
the simplicity of it and how and and how kind of grand that was in itself, you know, because it it's not with my mum. She didn't she didn't change the world, but she she definitely made the world better for all the people that were in her in her universe, you know. And so and that was what I was kind of trying to do with with Carl in that scene. Mm. Yes, and I love the line "making nothing into something." You know, this this it reminds me of the the Yeats line. I was the sorry the um, in memory of W. B. Yeats by Auden poem, um, which I seems to be right for every occasion. That poetry <laughs> makes nothing happen. Um, it, it makes nothing happen. <laughs> it turns nothing into something. Oh yeah! Oh, that's beautiful. What a beautiful line. Yeah, it's um. It, I mean, there's something about the, the, there's a really nice kind of parallel to the way grief works, I think, and that was that was what that was also tapping into. I think it, it feels the feeling of of grief is is kind of obliteration, is kind of nothingness. But then to be able to turn it into somethingness, you know, and even in in the way I kind of work to try and turn my own grief into a in, into kind of a creative expression was um, was an example of that, I guess. Mm, yes, and, and I know that the book was a response to your mother's death, um, but but you could have just sat down and, and and could have sat down and written it. Um, what made you decide to do it as a PhD project? Mm, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I think to be honest, I've done all the. Um, all my writing has been kind of done in the academic context. I've done an undergrad in creative and professional writing and honours as well. And what I found great about it is that it gave me mentors and peers and um, kind of took away that isolation that writing can kind of give you or that you have to kind of have in order to create. And with a, an actual PhD, the, the brilliant thing about it is that it gave me not only financial permission because it gives you because if you're lucky enough to get a scholarship, you actually get get money to write a novel, which is so beyond <laughs> beyond me. Um, and particularly when when no one knows you, no one's heard of you, you're not going to get any kind of grant. So it's almost like getting a grant to write a novel. And you also get the the kind of social permission to write a novel as well because you're doing it within academia and and when someone asks you what you what you do you can say oh, I'm doing a PhD not just I'm I'm writing a novel <laughs> and so that that was kind of nice that was just a, a little extra perk but I think really what um, the main thing, the main reason why I did it in that way was because I would get backing, I would get, and so that would give me time, having fun, I wouldn't have to have a, um, a full-time job and try and work around that. And also because, yeah, immediate peers and um, and people who would help me kind of through the process. Mm. Yes. Do you think the fact that it was an academic project changed the nature of the book? Um, did you have, for example, did you have to write about the process of writing? I think you have to do something like that, don't you? Yeah, you do. And and that's a really good question because um, that 
was something that I was a bit worried about um, because you, that that can often happen. But the fantastic thing about my uni, I went to Curtin Uni, they definitely were able to see see the novel as a, as a work in itself, and the because you have to write. Um, what's called an exegesis, which is just a big essay, really, about um, about the process of what you're actually doing. It's, it's a theoretical kind of response to it, and and yeah, sometimes those two can kind of morph and become, and your novel might become kind of unpublishable or inaccessible, and that's not what I wanted. But Curtin was fantastic in that they saw those as two completely separate. Um, pieces of work and so I was able to work on them quite independently of each other as long as they kind of answered the same research question basically and mine was about the concept of representing grief and so I wrote a creative response to that which was my novel and then a theoretical response which yeah which just talked about all the different kind of ways of, of representing grief in the in the contemporary context, so in the memoir and in the novel and and all the different kinds of ways. Mm. And probably gives you a lot of material to work with now too, that you're you know, you're out talking about the novel rather than writing it. Exactly. That is really true. Uh, um, it put me in really good stead in that way because I kind of know where my novel fits as well in the marketplace and because um, I've read everything around it for the last five years. And so that's been really, really handy, I think. Yeah. And, and I mean, grief is the obvious um, thing that the novel's about, but it also has some other pretty big themes, um, this notion of these small but loud voices. And I love the contrast of the small people with loud voices. Um, you know, the, what it means, I think, to be disenfranchised. Hmm. Yeah, that's right. And that is just a, I love that description of small but loud voices and that's exactly how I feel about them. And I, I really wanted to have characters because one of my characters is seven and the other two <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, 82 and 87. And it was very, very important to me to have those voices that were kind of outside of the voices that we, we really listened to and the very young and the very old are quite kind of invisible in um, in terms of the kind of um, popular voices that that we kind of hear all the time and it gave them kind of permission I think to be able to ask the hard questions that perhaps we don't ask ourselves and and made me and helped me to kind of think about if if we're kind of doing things things in the right way, particularly with the elderly, I I just wondered whether things are a bit upside down in in our culture that we we don't give them a voice and, and as soon as someone becomes kind of old and, and sick they become invisible and in their kind of post-social awareness and that that really bothered me and that's something that I that I wanted to yeah to think about and to think quite deeply about and represent in this book mm. yes I mean especially with Carl but you know I think with Millie too like wanting to there are many forces that want to kind of put them in their box <laughs> yeah that's exactly right and because 
the beautiful thing is that she's she's pre-social awareness and so she doesn't know all the rules yet she doesn't know where the edges of that box is yeah you know and I love that about her and how I had so much fun with her I was able to play with with her so so freely and that was a beautiful thing to me Mm. Did her voice come to you immediately? Because it's it's very pervasive through the book. Did what? Sorry. Did Millie's voice come to you immediately? Ah, yeah. Um, definitely. It actually took me ages to start writing fiction again after Mum died, which was a strange thing for me because it's it's always how I've done things. I've never really explored things from my my own kind of voice, I guess. But as soon as I started writing fiction again, her voice was the first one that came to me. And I find that super interesting because of the way we become pretty childlike when we're grieving, particularly when, when it's our mum. And that in, in the kind of obstinance of it, you know, and the, the, the kind of... Um, the the way you think it's it's very very unfair and I um I, I felt that it was a child a child's voice was just so so natural to explore grief in yes that that sense of abandonment exactly I, I still need a bit more mom come back what sorry. I said, I still need a bit more mothering, please. Yes, exactly. I know. And that's, I mean, I think we, the thing is, I think we feel that no matter how old we are, and even if we're, you know, 90 years old, my nan is 90 years old now. And and sometimes when I, I talk about her family and her mum, I showed her a picture of her mum the other day, and you should have seen her face. It just, melted me in every direction you know she because she had forgotten what it had it felt like to be the the child of a mother you know and and you could see that that feeling was returning to her in that moment and how sorry yeah go ahead that's okay uh it's that's just kind of beautiful too though that linking um that sense of of community i mean when you lose a a mother um Mm. you know, which I have recently as well. And I guess you get this sense that there is something now that you have that is instantly recognizable by anybody who, hmm. who has felt grief of this sort. It's so a link, true. connection in a, in a world of isolation, I guess. Oh, it's beautiful. Exactly. It's something that it, it binds us all. Every single one of us, we we we're all born from somebody, and and whether or not we actually have a connection with our mother physically or mentally or, or however it works, we still are born from a mother, and so there's that feeling is present within all of us, and it's no matter how old you are or where you come from. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, the book is about grief, but as you said in other interviews, it's not a sad, dark book. Um, even though, and, and I don't think this is a spoiler, Millie um, <laughs> will die, as we all will. Um, but I guess life carries on because it's still beautiful now. Yeah, yeah, and that was that was really important for me to to show as well. I didn't want 
it to be I read a lot of the grief memoirs that are going around at the moment and they're very useful and and fantastic representations of what it all feels like. But I didn't want my representation of grief to be like that because I felt that it it showed the concept of grief to be to have a beginning and an end and to show that it was only about sadness and that is not how I see it. I I just I guess what I, the way I feel about it is, because I don't know when someone decided that sadness isn't a part of life and isn't a part of everything else, the, the good, the bad, and the, the indifferent. And I, and so that was, it was important for me to show that, that we, we, that grief is a beautiful thing because what it means is, that we have loved someone so fiercely or dependent on someone so completely that we feel like our world is obliterated when they're not in it. And and there's something really pretty incredible about the way humans are in that, I think. And so I wanted all of that to be in there because it means that the reason why I am so sad for the loss of my mum is because she gave me so much joy, she made me laugh, she did make, she made all sorts of things, made me feel safe, she made me feel all those things and so that, that's how I wanted to present it in my book. Mm. Yes, and of course you feel grief because you're alive, which is yeah. something. Yeah, <laughs> something. exactly, um, it's so true. Yeah, so uh, another thing that, that the book seems to explore in, in many different ways um, is this notion of good and bad, good and evil, I guess, good and bad probably rather than evil, um, is that at one point when Agatha's on the train, she thinks about her husband Ron and their quiet life and how he made her a bonox each night, made her meatloaf even when it was terrible. Um, and, and, and she has this moment of wondering whether he was a good person or a better person than her or than most, and then she comes to that conclusion that she's not a good person. Um, so there are some really obvious baddies in the book, you know, um, Millie's mother perhaps, um, Carl's son, perhaps, um, certainly the officious train conductor and the hooligans who get drunk and threaten Millie at the graveyard, um, but none are cartoon baddies. You know, there's always hurting and flaw, mm-hmm. which allows for some forgiveness. Hmm. I'm so glad you say that because I was a bit, I was a little bit worried that it's difficult because you have to have that conflict, you know, and I, I didn't. I wanted to have that conflict, but I wanted there to be an understanding that we're all going through something and that people like Millie's mum, who maybe make the wrong decisions in, in terms of their own children, need so much of our compassion because the problem with, with someone like Millie's mum is that it's just too much for her. The world is too much for her and she's, she's going through a pretty big bout of depression and she hasn't made the right decision but what she needs what she doesn't need is us to judge her what she needs is us to help her and whether or not she can can reach out for that is another is another issue but yeah i i definitely wanted to show the the kind of full gamut of of how we are in in our best and worst ways and how perhaps we we need to really think about the daily interactions that we have with all kinds of people. It's very easy to dismiss someone when they 
someone like Agatha who who would just yell at you and not be very kind at all to take a moment and maybe think well what's happened in her life to make her like that and and that was um it's definitely part of my own world view and it's something that I wanted to be in in this book mm. yes there's a lot of compassion running through it oh, I'm glad to hear that mm. so the book has been a massive success um, which is atypical of first novels. And I know you've talked a fair bit about the shock and excitement that comes with that success. And, and I think for all of us who spend a lot of time around books, that excitement and the fact that your book is, is actually also wonderful, not just a uh, success, is something that, you know, I feel we all can enjoy and participate in it. But beyond that, does it now also add some pressure to you? Um, you're no longer doing a PhD and expectations are high. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's, it's so different now, Magdalena. I mean, it is. I mean, it's, this whole thing is a big surprise working as a bookseller. I know how kind of unusual this all is. And so I'm, yeah, hugely excited about it and kind of stunned by the whole thing. And it, but yeah, there is that element. It's just so, so different now. I'm going to, when I start writing this second one, it's going to be a totally different landscape. When I wrote this book, I mean, I thought maybe my dad would read it <laughs> and and maybe my family. And, and I didn't expect complete strangers to be reading it and to be liking it. And that, that's a, a really lovely thing. But it does. It completely changes everything. And so... It'll be a very, very big challenge for me. I'm, I'm excited to see how I deal with it, and it could go either way. <laughs> but, but um, I hope it goes in a, in a good direction, you know, and it, it gives me confidence. And um, I mean, the the most beautiful thing about this, and the most perfect thing about it, is that I am now going to be able to to write full time for a little while, and that I never, never expected that to happen ever um so i just i feel super grateful for that and that chance so we'll we'll see what happens fingers crossed it all works out <laughs> and you still get to spend a fair bit of time in bookstores yeah exactly in so many different ways which is cool i'm still working at my bookshop um my i don't think my boss is still working yeah my, okay. my boss won't let me quit in any time um and yeah, great thing is that I get to tour and visit bookshops and talk to fellow book nerds, which is my my idea of heaven. So it's great. I get to keep in touch with it, what everyone's reading, and um, and that is just man, what a life I'm leading at the moment. It's incredible. Yeah, and I suppose if anybody asks you for any recommendations, you're uh, <laughs> in a good position to be Oh, it's so hard, Magdalena. I find um, I I haven't hand sold my book at all. I've because um, it's too embarrassing. <laughs> but but it's been a funny time, and it is a really lovely time. Like I just don't, I don't think many people would get this experience of writing a book and then actually selling it. People come up to the counter and and ask me if I've read my own book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah, like, it's so 
man, it's been hard just to to disconnect myself from the voices I'm I'm so used to writing in. So um yeah, it's nice to have a bit of bit of time to just kind of very gently lay them to rest. <laughs> Rather than abandon them abruptly, since they've all been abandoned That's abruptly. That's right, I know. That's right. I'm giving them more, more issues of, in- of abandonment. That's awful. That's terrible. <laughs> it's okay, they're characters. Yeah, I know. It's funny. You, just, you forget sometimes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So there are, are there at least some ideas um, that you're you're kicking around with the next one, some broad themes? Yeah, I am. And I don't really, I can't even really talk about it because it's so kind of muddy in my mind. But there's definitely, I think, um, I'm going to think a little bit about the way families work. I think that's, I mean, that's so, so broad. But um, but we'll we'll see. I've, it's There's a certain character I have in mind and, and we'll see how that, that kind of works out. I think I can't even really announce it because my my brain won't even put it into into proper words. <laughs> That's good. Well, well, I'm sure uh, I, like the rest of the world, will be looking forward to that. So um, wonderful. Thank you so much, Brooke. That's all we have time for today. But I appreciate you dropping by. And listeners, don't forget to check in next month for another great interview. And you can subscribe to the show online or via iTunes, and that way you won't miss anything. Bye for now. Thanks, Magdalena. Okay.